welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in, everybody. This is our Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour. I am joined today by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Let me make sure I always botch the audio. That's that's a guarantee. That happens every episode. Um, I'm joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. The structure of this episode is we can talk anything financial markets. Um, I guess it's a fairly busy week. Uh, so anything's fair game. And then the, it, these are live on, uh, on YouTube. So if you just YouTube chit chat money on Thursdays at 4 PM Pacific time, seven o'clock Eastern time, you can uh, catch these and, and ask questions if you want to. I know most people just end up listening to this in podcast format. So to each their own. Uh, but if you ever want to get some questions in, we love getting them. Um, we have a couple of actives that are that are constantly there. So always appreciate them. Brett, how are you today? Doing well. Uh, weather's awful up here. And yeah, it's it's getting to the boring part of the winter, but no one needs to hear about the local weather. Two housekeeping items. One, subscribe to the newsletter. It's free. It's in the show notes and it'll help you out basically. Well, not help you out, but it's great info to go along with each episode. And again, it's free and easy to sign up. You get a lot of show notes and information along with each episode um, into your inbox. Two, we're going to start talking about uh, just remembering, if you like the show, give it a five-star review on either Apple or Spotify. It takes you about five seconds and it's the easiest way to help us uh, grow. Because sometimes we get some mean reviews in there on Apple. To be honest, we'd like to get some nice reviews in there. So if you enjoyed the show, give us a nice review um, and a five-star comment because that can help more people go to the show. But I'm going to tweet out the link uh, to this episode. And Ryan, do you want to talk about our sponsor who's doing a great deal to towards the end of 2022 as we wrap up the year here? Yeah, I, I think pretty much everyone that's listened to this podcast knows the name by now, but it's 7investing. There are exclusive sponsors. And I, I've i said this now on a couple of episodes, but I know not everyone listens to every single one. So I, I, it bears repeating. They have a deal right now that's you literally get the whole service for free. So um, it's, it's a one week trial for a dollar, but if you use the code money, you get that dollar off. And then you also can use money again for the annual if you decide to subscribe for the year. So I this is the best time to at least check it out and try. I can't think of better value because it's literally free. Um, and there, I mean, you've mentioned this before, but you're bound to find a company in there that piques your interest because they have, for one, they have such different uh, advisors that cover such different topics um, and different expertises. So you might not agree with every single pick, but there's there's got to be something in there that that's bound to uh, potentially be a good idea and and something that really sticks with whoever the readers are. So really recommend going and checking it out. The code is money. You get a hundred dollars off the annual, and then obviously you get the 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 trial there for free. So free week, 
go ahead, check it out. But that's going to do it for the sponsor. Let's uh, let's talk financial markets. Anything big this week that like anything glaringly obvious that I missed? I don't think you missed it, but I, I have the huge thing with the semiconductor plants in Arizona uh, with uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, Apple, AMD, NVIDIA. Um, and I'll hit that on my topics. But besides that, earnings have been kind of slow. We're in what the software period. So if you're kind of in that, you know, we, we had some MongoDB report, Snowflake, a uh, few Today others. Today was a retail one. Today was big retail. Chewy, Lululemon, uh, uh, DocuSign right. reported today. Let's see how abysmal those were. I think it was up actually, but expectations have been quite low. That is a bombed out stock. So, yeah, no, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's like a great core business, but uh, that's just one where like talk about COVID resetting expectations. There was, if 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 I'm reading the the Glassdoor reviews right, it sounds like the entire sales staff failed to meet their quotas this year and quit. So, uh, or at least that's at least what the disgruntled employees made it sound like. And then the CEO obviously left as well. So, uh, it, it just goes to show how important it is. I think maybe more so than anything else, the role of a CEO is to manage expectations. Maybe that's. I don't know if that's number one, but strategic direction too. But yeah, I'd say capital allocation is number one, but that managing expectations is definitely important. It's got CFO written all over it. Uh, I think you you want well, maybe for internal investments, CEO capital allocation matters, but I think CFO run buybacks. Yeah, well, it's more than just buybacks. Yeah, it's more than just buybacks. All right. Uh, should we get started here? I've got some pretty interesting news, but I'm trying to pull it up on the, the computer that I am doing video on. So let me get there. Uh, Block had basically this, um, I don't know what to call it, sort of a Monday, a Cyber Monday, Black Friday review because they, you know, they, they work with so many retailers. And so they kind of gave this comprehensive review, except it, it was like not all that comprehensive. Like it was a lot mm-hmm. of it was a lot of pieces of data that like didn't give me a very good glimpse at what was actually like happening in the retail space. So the news was Square and Afterpay sellers. So between the two ecosystems, uh, the sellers that are associated with each one saw more than sixty-one million transactions during Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping weekend. That is, they didn't say whether or not that was up or down from last year. Maybe it's because Afterpay wasn't integrated last year, so it's hard for them to tell. But <clears throat> I, it sounds like a lot, I guess. So that's good. Um, the other thing they mentioned: Square payroll labor data shows a nineteen percent increase in holiday staffing, with employees clocking three point eight million labor hours. Sounds to me like margins are compressing, but what, what, uh, oh, say that again. Uh, basically, they said labor was up 19%. Employees mm-hmm. during holiday staffing was up 19%. I assume that's year over year. It doesn't actually say that explicitly. Um, the other thing they mentioned here are transactions of buy now, pay later methods through Afterpay grew 120%. And then I was like, wow, I can't believe it's still going that fast compared to pre-holiday across online and in person. 
Well, that, yeah, that's got to be an easy count comp. I wish they would give <laughs> to last year during the same time period. Um, October, November, just totally different periods <laughs> for retail, as we all know, especially in the United States. Yeah. And then um, I guess a couple of other. OK, so and I don't know if this is year over year data. I, I think it is. But if they're comparing this to pre uh, pre holiday, I don't know. It's such a meaningless comp. Um, all right. Fastest growing afterpay item categories. You may have seen my tweet, but can you get can you guess what the fastest growing category is? Well, I just clicked your link, so I, I have it up. So spoil it. I, I don't want to spoil it. Tell the listeners what it is. Okay. Food and beverage use of afterpay for food and beverage items was up 251%. Would that not concern you if you were a lender? Maybe. It depends on what. I guess it would be hard to get this data and you won't know until... It is concerning, but maybe people are just using it in general and they kind of have their two week periods that they're replacing it with a credit card for where people don't really scoff at, you know, people, people using credit cards to buy food and beverages. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. And yeah, this is going to definitely drive revenue growth, right? But yeah, if people feel the need to do layaway on a, a sandwich purchase, that's not. I guess we'd have to see more data, but it's potentially concerning, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Maybe I'm overthinking it. And I probably am, but when I read that, I think, okay, they need an installment loan to buy their cup of coffee. That's uh, not, I don't know. Not, it, it doesn't have to be need. It could be. It could be need. It could be them just replacing their credit card. Yeah, that's true. That's that's one way to look at it. But why is it just outpacing every other category so much? A lot of advertisers out there, I suppose, putting it. They're they're putting in a lot of marketing dollars. Who knows? Um, It seems like there's just a narrative that out there that younger people don't like credit cards, and this is basically the same the same thing with different terms, right? Uh, But Younger people seem like our age seem to like this better. Uh, it's showing up in the data, but uh, who knows? It's, it's kind of pick your poison, right? You're still taking out a loan to buy a consumer item. Yeah, you're deferring expenses. All right. Uh, this is maybe a little more interesting. Trending afterpay search terms, the most, the highest trending were PS5, number one, gift cards. That's not even no. Nintendo Switch was the second. Uh, sorry, they've got these out of order. Nintendo Switch was the second. Xbox was the third. Uh, those were all up hundred, basically double. Uh, and then toys and gift cards, thirty percent, forty percent. It bodes well for uh, video game industry, at least. The uh, and we I saw so. some data. We saw some purchasing data around the Switch console the PS5 console and the Xbox console and all seem to be doing really, really well compared to last year. Yeah. I can maybe find that data for the United Kingdom and um, yeah. But yeah, keep going. I guess that was just the UK. Yeah. But the uh, that's, uh, we own a couple of video gaming companies and anytime you can see them actually meeting demand, it's a little more satisfying 
it's still one of those areas where so many people can't get it. Despite yeah. the desire to get it. Yeah. Uh, the supply is just going to be slow. Um, no, there's not much else to discuss there, right? <laughs> you, can't, you can't build 20 million computers, which is basically what these are, uh, computers that are built for gaming. Within a month, it's going to take a lot of time. And once you get that backlog, I think it's really hard to come out of that because it's not like you can just, oh, double it in, in a quarter. You have to really, really ramp up and then even ramping down is slower. So it's going to have to just be over time. And hopefully this holiday season is the end of it. Uh, just for the gaming world, I mean, kind of normalized, but we'll see. It seems like supply is still a bit constrained. Um, and let me try to find that while, if you keep going, if you have any more info here. No, I mean, that was basically the just of the report. I think you get probably a lot more from Adobe's Cyber Monday, Black Friday weekend wrap up because they, they kind of have analytics on basically the entire e-commerce space. So uh, it's a little more useful potentially. The only other uh, item that I brought to the table, and I guess it wasn't the newsiest week for me, but the uh, Airbnb, I don't know if you saw this, but they launched like an apartments tab. I did. Or it's like a part partnership, right? Or something like that. Yeah. It's like a section where you can find apartment Airbnb friendly apartments. So in a way, it's kind of going after a new demographic of of renters as opposed to just like vacationers where you can browse. If you're looking for a place where you want to be able to rent it out for two weeks out of the month or a week out of the month and you want to have that flexibility, a lot of apartments don't allow it. Um, but Airbnb's basically created the dashboard to go find it. My thought here is that this is going to encourage apartments to be more accepting of it, which... Yeah, because it's competitive where renters are going to want this option. Yeah, and now they have a directory to find them. Um, I, de- I definitely want this option. I actually looked up the Seattle area. Not really. There's only a couple, so limited supply right now, which I guess is to be expected, but... For both of us, as so, two people that don't have, um, we're not tied down to any, you know, in-person work, we would have the ability to leave and maybe take a month somewhere else and live somewhere else, probably on Airbnb, maybe one of the other platforms, and then rent out uh, your apartment. And you're not, you know, paying double rent and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, it just makes, I don't know, it makes living there more affordable, especially if you have like a two-bedroom. And yeah. you're not using them both. That's a good point. I didn't think about that as as well. It can really help with just, I think it can really help with supply and demand issues as well. I know Airbnb has been, people complain about that being bad for supply um, because people lock up places that they only use for short-term rentals in certain areas. And then long-term stayers and renters and homeowners kind of get a restricted supply, but I think with this, it can it can really help out because there's definitely a lot of people in our shoes as well who could who could utilize these features. Yeah, agreed. I agree. I hope it makes renting more affordable for a lot of people. Um, plus, it boosts inventory on Airbnb potentially if more apartments adopt this this uh, solution. The 
other thing I was thinking about with Superhost, and I see this all the time because there were a lot of people that took advantage of the low rates where they basically levered up, bought a whole bunch of places, rented them out via Airbnb. How do you think a rise in rates impacts not only those people, but Airbnb ultimately? Ooh, well, this is an impossible question to answer, but I think we can try. We'll try to work through it. Um, I think their their average nightly rate could come down. It's gone up a lot over the last year or so. And I think that's just with housing and whatever affordability and all that stuff going up a ton as well. I think they could definitely be impacted in the short run. If there's a lot of supply out there and... Wouldn't this hurt supply potentially? uh, What do you mean? Rates or... Yeah, rising rates. Well... I no, I think assuming that they finance them at low rates and it's not variable. Well, you you mean hurt supply for who? Like, would supply be going up or down? My the the amount of places on Airbnb with when did they go down? Isn't that that's kind of my thought? Maybe, but there also could just be a lot of the people that came on um, giving out big discounts which would lower the daily rates. So we'll see what happens. So I think there's a lot of variables at play there. So I, I think in the short run, daily rates could get hurt. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. It seems like that whatever it was, I think it was a 30% or maybe 40% bump in average daily rates will be, that's definitely not sustainable. And I wonder if it's going to revert back. Um Here's a question though. Do you think the the one of the hardest questions I think investors have with Airbnb, and I don't think anyone can answer this, is how many if you could ask and make any sort of prediction, how many dollars in GMV will be flowing through their platform in 2030? You could easily I, I you could easily envision a world where it's a trillion a year, right? I think they're at like 130, but I can I'll confirm it. But there's also a world where it's maybe only 200 billion, depending on how people adapt. And I guess a lot of it comes down to the company execution. But I just think it's really interesting to follow this business, even if it's building out a its lot own. Of- it's, it's building out its own. It's not replicating anyone. This is a whole new business model. So we don't know how large this market is. They're untamed. Um, no, the- yeah, the good, good, uh, good point. The. Uh- also, I think it's kind of dependent on rates, would be my guess. For volumes? Yes. No, not the, I mean, I don't think people are going to be buying as much as many houses and just flipping them and making them available on Airbnb when you have to do it at an 8% mortgage. Maybe, but I don't know if that means their daily rates are going to go up. No, but I'm saying that that's going to hurt their ability to get to a trillion in GMV if there's less, if there's just simply not enough supply. Yes, but I I think that's logical, but I just don't, uh, life will find a way, I guess, is how I'm trying to describe it. If there's demand, it'll get there. They'll force it onto the market. 
Yeah, I suppose. I like Airbnb. Don't like the price, but slightly expensive. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Last quarter, just for reference for the listeners, G gross booking value of oh no, it's under a hundred billion. Uh, it was fifteen billion last quarter, so they're at about maybe. Well, there could be some seasonality. Uh, let me look at Q4 last year, but they're at about 60, 70 billion, maybe. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's talk chips. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Under $50 billion last year. Yeah. We'll get to my topics. Really came in with a lot of notes here, Ryan, today. I've got some talking points. All right. Uh, there's also a fun one I have at the end. I'm also, what, what was the other one I have? The Blackstone's uh, REIT called Breet. It's a weird name, but we'll get to that. Very interesting story. And then also, uh, there's something, there's a good tweet about Ponzi schemes that had a funny response. Okay. But this is a good serious one. Probably the most interesting topic from the last week. And that is Apple TSMC and other chip designers banding together in Arizona. Um, TSMC, which is Taiwan semiconductor, the largest semiconductor manufacturer in the world. Um, along with the president of the United States announced an expansion to $40 billion of investment into the state of Arizona for factories. Well, the previous number was just $12 billion. The first plant is set to begin production in 2024. The new plants will actually have more advanced nodes than previously thought. They will have a three nanometer one by 2026. And right now the uh, leading edge is five nanometers. So these will be pretty close to the leading edge. And if we look at their customers, Apple, AMD, and NVIDIA are going to be committing to purchasing from these factories. And for reference for kind of the global supply, this will be enough supply for current U.S. demand for computer chips. Now in 2026, 2028, U.S. demand for computer chips is probably going to be higher. We'll see, I guess. Uh, but it's, it's a sizable amount. And this doesn't take into in fact uh, uh, Intel, other companies that are manufacturing in the U.S. Intel is committing, I think, $40 billion as well to Ohio. Uh, to build out factories there, as well as Arizona. can't remember the exact numbers, but they're in Ohio and Arizona. TSMC is just in Arizona. Uh, I think the big thing here is there are $52.7 billion worth of potential subsidies uh, because of the CHIPS Act taxed by the U.S. government. Uh, And I think that is just why TSMC is going aggressively here because they're hopefully going to get, you know, some free whatever it is, tax stuff, However, however, they're going to get this money, some of this $50 billion, um, and it'll help them build out these factories at even better returns on invested capital. I also saw that uh, TSMC founder Morris Chang, he did a speech there. It seemed to be a who's who. You had Chang, President Biden, Tim Cook. Uh, uh, what's the AMD? What's, what's, her, what's her? Lisa Sue, I think. She was there. I'm sure the NVIDIA guy who was a very uh, loud man. man. He was probably there doing a nice speech, but the TSMC founder, Morris Chang, at his speech said that globalization is, quote, almost dead 
Get a comment here from Matt H, who again is leading the chat. Thank you for being the one person that watches on YouTube. He says, how pissed is Xi about this? Referencing uh, Xi Jinping. I think he's probably quite pissed. And this seems like an interesting counter move for Apple, TSMC, from all these China worries that have been popping up. So any thoughts on there before we go into, I have a couple questions about uh, these companies from an investment perspective. No, I am like, just, I just simply don't have any takes on the uh, semi-manufacturing space, just because I feel like it's always that area where I'm disadvantaged in terms of what I know, but I have to imagine that President Xi doesn't feel very good about this. And do you think this would have happened had it not been for him? For being aggressively saying that they're going to or leaking or reports out there that they want to reuni- reunify, quote yeah. unquote, uh, Taiwan this decade. I think TSMC and Apple are probably talking like, all right, you guys seeing this? Like, we need to get, you know, these factories take multiple years to get ready. We need to do this now. Commit the dollars. The U.S. government is going to give us a boatload of money. Let's go. Yeah, to me, it's, I think she is pissed about this, probably. But <laughs> it's his at own the same fault. time, <laughs> yeah. like, he probably forced this. Yeah. Um, or at least forced it many years in advance. Um, but. I don't don't you think it's more costly in the US or are the subsidies going to get rid of that? We'll see. I mean it's not uh, semiconductor factories are not based off of low cost labor. It's all about technological science, you know, the, the reason that TSMC's core factories in Taiwan are so good is because they have the smartest engineers within that space. There they have the smartest scientists and all that stuff and they have the contracts with asml who do a lot of the r&d i guess for them essentially so i don't think there's low cost labor isn't the thing low cost energy is probably important right which the u.s has some of the lowest cost energy in the world Um, yeah didn't you say arizona has a water problem and i did tweet that but someone figured someone i wanted to i tweeted that out so people would maybe respond and show that it wasn't a big deal i think these there's a lot of numbers that get thrown around about these plants using a ton of water, but since they're a lot of it just gets recycled. So some of those numbers are inflated, but they do use water. Um, but again, Arizona, I, I would think that Apple TSMC would have that sorted out. So I think they have these water treatment plants and these recycling facilities uh, for them, but they're, they're super energy intensive. So you want low cost energy. U.S. has that. And especially in the Southwest, there's tons of renewable potential. Um, and then you have, you just got to get the scientists and engineers over here. I would think TSMC would be able to bring those over to the United States and there would be enough from American colleges to fulfill that. Although we'll see. So what are um, the, what are the investing implications? Yeah. So th- these are the questions I wanted to ask. Uh, does this make you more bullish or bearish on first one, Apple? Bullish. I agree. What? What? Um, I think it's pretty obvious. But what are any? Yeah, I want to see if you have the same thoughts as me. I, I, I mean, it takes a huge. The component in their supply chain is 
the risk is assuming that this it gets up to any sort of level to what they have in Taiwan, it completely diversifies away the risk geographically from being in Taiwan. Yeah. Now, I think 90% of their manufacturing or assembly is in China still. So it's going to take a lot of work to get them out of out of the country if they really want to. It'll probably take multiple years. But yeah, I'm in the same camp. It would make me more bullish. However, though, you can maybe flip that and say, in the short run, they are exposed. So like they're making the right steps, but it's because they made mistakes seven years ago. Yeah, I also wonder how th- this now puts them at potentially a uh, not so beneficial relationship with President Xi, or maybe not as uh, amicable. I should say, they, yeah, in conflict, yeah, yeah. Which, if that's where I think this would really hurt them in terms of gross margins, would be if their actual like labor side was had to be repositioned somewhere else yeah we saw that foxconn stuff yeah that's interesting. a lot of people would be getting google pixels potentially except or, they're probably manufacturing over there too yeah i think uh a lot of people wouldn't be upgrading that's that's the thing a lot of people kinda... yeah a lot of people wouldn't be uh, won't be upgrading that's a it's just a huge risk and i, I just don't Again, everyone loves Apple. I've said this many times, but I don't understand the multiple it gets because of these risks. Um, I, I, I really think it deserves like 10 times earnings. But I'd take it at 10 times, but yeah, there is some risk. Yeah. It is like if anything in their operation ceases them from. Cutting out upgrades at the same pace, you're going to see a huge crunch in the multiple. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like if there's, God forbid, one day President Xi said, we're done manufacturing your phones. Or he pulled an H&M and said, basically, I don't know what they did, but they did. Oh, I, I've read into that. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, like where they uh, cut them out of like all search. Yeah. Something like that. And even more, they have the really authoritarian state. Um, internet capabilities and stuff. You guys, listeners know what I mean there, where they can basically influence everyone to stop buying that's whatever H&M. I wonder if they could do the same as Apple. Apple's got a stronger brand than H&M, but I think that could be a risk in retaliation because one, China wants to make homegrown semiconductors and two, the more people are buying iPhones from them, if the, the manufacturing isn't in that country. They're not benefiting because all the profits are going back to United States corporation. Um, I don't think he would like that. But again, we are not in a <laughs> conversation with Xi Jinping. So who knows for sure? He may not um, be thinking that at all. All right, next one. Does this make you more bullish or bearish on Taiwan Semiconductor TSMC? That one feels like a no-brainer bullish. Yeah. Already at 10 times earnings-ish. Well, it popped after Buffett bought it. So maybe it's a little higher now. Um, the big risk was the China invasion. And it seems like five to seven years from now, they could really mitigate some of that risk. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I feel like that probably the China invasion risk. I think I'm guessing cut their multiple in half of what it would have been had had the risk just not been present. Yeah, because the the market share, the almost monopoly, and it's far more. And correct me if I'm wrong, and you might you might not know the answer, but it's far more durable and less cyclical than being the chip designers. Yes and no, I think, because they can. No, that's very that's interesting. They're still it at uh, the whims of what the end market demand is. So if smartphone demand goes down, or cloud demand goes down. Or AI demand goes down. If that all goes down at once, then they'll be hurt. But yeah, like an NVIDIA on its own, who might have a subsection of the market, they were being exposed into cryptocurrencies. That would impact them way, way more. But um, how far it, it, that would have that could be much more cyclical. Where I think TSMC is exposed to almost all ends of the semiconductor market, at least all ends of the advanced semiconductor market. Isn't their backlog huge though? Yes, but the backlog. There's a lot of companies that double order um, to try to get preferential treatment, stuff like they that. They can just so, pull back on it. Also, it can still be cyclical. Remember when earlier this year we were talking about backlogs at and supply at all the cars manufacturers, right? And how that can get fixed really in, in a shorter time than people think. But TSMC... Yeah, it, it's cyclical, but they have a. It seems like they have a strong mode. We don't need to go through the investment. Can you guess what TSMC's revenue kegger has been since 1994? Oh, I think I know this. 17. percent Correct. So I guess it's on their it's on their homepage. Yeah, that wrote enough. Earnings, while it, earnings have not outpaced them. No, they reinvest so much. They are in a huge capital cycle. But margins are up significantly. I think it's impressive what their margins are. They have their ability to negotiate with people, even like Apple, is is impressive. They paid nine and a half billion in dividends in twenty twenty one. What's their what's yields the yield? like two percent right now? I think something like that. 2%. They don't buy back any. They don't buy back any stock. Um. I can see why Buffett liked it, though. It re- it went down into his ten times PE kind of uh, strike zone. They, yeah, the, the share count's flat. Um, they it's reinvest almost. They reinvest almost all operating cash flow into new capex, though, which has worked out wonderfully because there's just an insane amount of end demand uh, to grow. All right. All right. Let's take this question: flat, Is flat, Google uh, Search dead? Oh, or should we uh, say it? should we say it how it's spelled? Is is Google search dead? With little sarcasm in there. The uh, no. reference referencing oh the, the, chat oh, GPT. That's right. He's referencing the chat thing. I saw a favorite um, bear porn, the most popular bear porn Twitter account, say that I used GT whatever GTP three OpenAI, and they said Google searches long for this world or something like that. And I couldn't help but laugh because when the bear porn people are out there doing it, usually means we're at the top of the hype cycle or something. And I saw them like, they're like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, the, the account goes, well, I used it for five minutes and then 
it was pretty clear. It's like, okay, thanks. But I think it's important to consider these uh, as a threat to Google because they could try to build a search engine type thing. We'll see what happens, but I, I'm pretty confident in Google's you, competitive You used advantage. it. What? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, dead? No, I actually was testing it out to see if it could write something like, like, like we do write, we do writing. Uh, I was testing out to see if you do writing and have any sort of, you know, investment writing, investment articles and have it make sense. It made no sense. Wasn't helpful at all. Ah, brutal. So they have not conquered the clickbait uh, investment article writing yet. And to be honest, I was, at first I was impressed, but I think like everyone else using it, I became unimpressed because I don't, a lot of the facts are wrong. <laughs> so you can't trust it. I feel like these these things are so gimmicky. People use it for like a week or two and then they go back to their old habits. Plus I had to Google it to to get there. Yeah, well... That's I mean, it's, it's, that's doesn't matter, but the point is, it's always going to be the first thing I go to. Yeah, and well, ninety percent of the internet. To be fair, to be fair, that Yahoo was the place a lot of people started out at and went to Google back in the day. So that is maybe if people are going to Google and then going to Chat GT, whatever it's called, GPT three, or whatever the you know whatever it is in general, that would be a threat because you want the, the most valuable thing is searching for stuff, but it's not <laughs> write me an article about Dropbox's competitive position. It's hotels in Cancun insurance policy is Seattle. It's nothing. Yeah. All right. Uh, Blackstone's REIT, which I kept seeing that acronym. I didn't know what it meant. B R E I T. I thought that had something to do with Brexit, but yeah, that when I was searching it, it started um, <laughs> to come up with Brexit stuff. But I would, if you see in the document, Ryan, you can click that Twitter thread. It can maybe help you out a bit. But I'll try to go through, summarize some of the points for the listeners. It's a long Twitter thread, and maybe we'll, if anyone's interested, check that out. But Blackstone is going through taking a ton of heat this week for limiting withdrawals. Um, on Breit, which is B-R-E-I-T. It's their fund. It's not publicly traded. At first, I thought it was an ETF, kind of like those other publicly traded REITs or whatever it would be, but it's not. Apparently, it's private. Um, it has $69 billion in assets, and the REIT is focused on the private markets. Now, the big question is, why are they limiting withdrawals? Well, we have to understand how the fund works first because it's a weird fund that uh, Blackstone kind of invented. Over the last, I don't know when it started, but and I'm sure this concept has been around before, but just stay with me. So this is not just for B-R-E-I-T, but for all the private REITs um, out there. So a private REIT is the same as a traditional REIT, but do not have public price discovery. So a REIT is a real estate investment trust. They invest in real estate. They have to pay out dividends. Um, I believe it's a 90% rate, uh, and that's what qualifies you as a REIT, as a real estate investment trust. But the private ones are different because they do not have public market price discovery. Now, what this means is that... So what, the investors are just general partners, and they're just getting paid out the cash in hand privately? 
ish or, or limited partners i think you mean but ish yeah, sort yeah, of sort of sort of like that you can envision it like that um but that what that means is that their nav or the asset value of the fund is set by recurring appraisals which quote unquote smooth the quote unquote volatility that would be there in public markets so within this fund uh performance has been great and that's why they've accumulated 69 billion dollars in assets you know we had low interest rates rising rents etc they focused on they weren't in commercial real estate which was smart so people really loved them and they they went into the stuff that was doing well data centers industrials rents i believe is what they were saying um, and that's why their nav has been soaring and fees for blackstone have been great i wouldn't even describe it as great i would say absolutely fantastic so they they have they have quite a bit of fees here. So they have a 1.25% management fee and then a 12.5% performance fee after a 5% hurdle, which isn't that bad. Uh, you know, each of those isn't that bad on their own, but I kind of combined it's a little bit. That's a lot for both to have both of those. And then they have a hefty selling fee, um, which we don't need to get into the details there. Is when when you sell, there's also a flat fee that gets taken out. And that is equated to for At any time, or is that yeah, yeah, like you after take, a lockup? Say if you take out your money, I, I believe it's at any time, but again, the thread and all the information I found didn't confirm that. So I think just say there's a selling fee. And from what uh, I should say, the thread person's name, Phil Bach, uh, who's a great follow on Twitter, knows this space extremely well. He said from his calculations, again, just maybe it was back of the napkin math, but it's just roughly right that these combined to 3.6% annual fees each year, um, which is a lot. But again, some of that is because their performance has been good. And then on that $69 billion in assets, that is $2.46 billion in high margin annual fees for Blackstone. So the big question is, is you have an investment fund who invests in real estate, but real estate is highly liquid what happens if investors want to sell so b-r-e-i-t investors or excuse me the fund they could sell some of their liquid mortgage-backed securities and then typically they just use inflows to offset redemptions but right now the real estate market is totally drying up because of rising rates inflows are drying up and redemptions are heating up so investors have tried to redeem at this high nav because remember they only appraise uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned it. They appraise the NAV or the asset value of the fund once a year. So right now, the NAV is stated at a much higher performance compared to all the publicly traded REITs. If you look at a chart that was shown in the thread, VNQ, which I believe is a Vanguard. Let me just confirm the name for everyone. Vanguard real estate ETF. So just say a really broad-based Vanguard type ETF. That performance used to track fairly closely. Share your screen. Share your screen. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll share. Yeah. Smart. Also, uh, smart. Some smart. comments. Some comments in the chat. Bijan or Bijan says, "Appreciate the content. You guys make a good podcast. Much appreciated." Then we've got a question from Tropical Storm, which we can uh, we can take after this. Uh, okay. But- yeah. I'm all, I'm almost done, but it, it's important because I think it's going to be a great example of asset liabilities mismatches. Um, so if you look at this chart here, might have to zoom in. The, the publicly traded one, VNQ, has totally fallen off a cliff this year. Not as sharply as during COVID, but again, pretty sharply. But the Breit NAV 
is only going higher. So real estate investors or REIT investors have tried to get out of this because they're saying, okay, they're seeing the writing on the wall. It's pretty obvious. Interest rates are rising. Real estate prices are falling. The NAV is going to decrease once they do their appraisals. So they try to redeem, but Blackstone has decided to gate redemptions and investors now have to wait in line to sell their stakes. At the same time, and Ryan, you're going you're gonna to get mad when I say this. I know for a fact you're going to get mad. Blackstone is still taking fees out on this artificially inflated nav. So first question. That should and, be illegal. That should be illegal. Well, see, I told you, I, I knew you were going to get mad. Uh, not talking about the morality, maybe, maybe we can get to that later. Uh, can Blackstone sell properties at these appraised prices? Will this lead to a you know run in the bank? You know, with a timing liquidity mismatch. We got a question from Matt H. How do you protect your piece with five hundred tabs open? Yeah, that's how I go. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's mentally insane. But <laughs> that's how my computer's big. It's only twenty. That's um, insane. That's that's so. Uh, I wouldn't be able to focus. Especially only, now they've got like the notifications that pop up on the on the tab. Uh, I only got one open at one time. It's yeah, criminal. Yeah. All right. To answer your question, though, no, obviously, I, I don't think who are they going to sell them to at appraised valuations? The only yeah. people they could sell them to is another subsidiary or fund that they start. <laughs> yeah, Blackstone's their own fund. So yeah. the question is, what like what happens? It seems like they're just delaying the inevitable. Um, after they I, I don't, after I don't they know. conclude their quarter, they will let the redemptions go. Once and then they'll guide down. Yeah, they'll take the nav down and then people can sell. But you, it, you let the quarter conclude, make the quarterly results look good, set expectations for next quarter. Say it's the macro environment, and then guide down. And what, then what you is, let the redemptions come out. What do you think Blackstone is thinking here? Are they just betting that interest rates aren't going to rise more? Because I just don't see this a way this doesn't end poorly and their investors getting either they lose a lot of Blackstone loses a lot of money. I guess it would be after earning a lot of fees or B, their investors get pissed at them. Mm. Uh, I would say B is a very likely scenario. The I don't understand how they're still taking fees. That's the part that really pisses me off. And then. Well, at, at the high price. Yeah. Aren't there protections? There has to be protections for LPs in these scenarios where they can take it, even if they have to have a high seller's fee. I wonder if they're completely holding withdrawals or redemptions, or they just have a ridiculously high early redemption fee. Uh, I think that would have been talked about in the thread. So I doubt they have a ridiculous early redemption fee. But, but I how think can it, you? It's the liquidity. It's the liquidity. I bet that was part of the contract that the investor signed. It's the liquidity where they could get a run on the bank if people try to redeem it. They wouldn't have the cash there. It would all be in real estate assets that you can't sell overnight. But who cares if, oh, oh, they just can't give them the money. Yeah, exactly. Blackstone hasn't. Okay. That's oh. why I think, that's why. I th- this take, just, take some from the parent company. Yeah, well. I don't know if that's legal, but well, uh, I, I don't know if this. Why, who thought this was a good idea? I, I don't. 
we're talking to John Rotante on Monday about Blackstone. Yeah, that'll probably come out later in December. Um, or I know it'll come on later in December. We'll see. Um if he has any thoughts on that. He knows the company better than us, but it's just one of their funds. Okay. Here's the here's the question though I have. Here's the question though I have that's more broad. Does this is a concept that comes up a lot? Does illiquidity deserve a premium valuation? People say it does. Why? Because it has smoother volatility. It's lower risk because of that. It's not. No, it's that's lower, the, Ryan, it's lower risk a, until it zeros. The, Ryan, that is the consensus. I'm only speaking what is the consensus out there. No, of course it deserves a discount. I know, but it's crazy that people think that public markets deserve It doesn't a deserve a premium. It gets one because they give it to themselves. Exactly. I, I, I agree with you, but that's... That's what they talk about. Yeah. Or that, that's what they, they claim that because it's lower volatility, it deserves a premium valuation, which doesn't make any sense to me. There's your, I mean, I guess it is lower volatility when anything non public is lower vol. I guess, but that comes back, maybe that comes back to the definition of risk. Volatility is not risk. So that, that just shows like it just, I think is a clear example of why volatility should not matter uh, unless you're leveraged, obviously, but what's the expression? Volatility is not risk. Volatility is opportunity. Yeah. Volatility is fees for Blackstone. (laughs) No lack thereof. Lack of volatility, low vol. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, they had a whole thing with low vol funds, I think a few years ago, but that's a story for another day. Okay. Let's take tropical storms question. He says, what pond is more exciting to fish in right now? Consumer staples or consumer discretionary? Ooh. That's a good question, actually. I that feel... tells me staples. Yes. I think this is a good time to start loading up discretionary ones for your watch list and then hoping the they get cut in half. I see how like... Sometimes I think recessions are fairly predictable once they like once you see the momentum going there. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's a very naive take. I haven't really been through one. But you can see well, COVID. the cycle. I mean, more of like, I suppose, but that felt more flash in the pan. It feels like once you start seeing the layoffs, layoffs affects the purchasing power. Purchasing power affects the top lines of the businesses. Operating line, operating wealth effects takes takes. Yeah, operating leverage goes down, margins go down. Mm, Yeah. uh, Well, what's interesting is that the market does seem to predict it because I believe there's some studies out there that stocks start going up well before um, the recession or all the negative trends and for the global. Or the or the whatever you know macroeconomic trends you're you're tracking. So, I think you are probably right, and that's shown up in a lot of studies that people have talked about. I'm, I'm um, saying if I'm going into if ju- okay, judging from kind of what I'm seeing anecdotally, which is people reining in spending slowly, but it's happening. Layoffs. I mean, we're seeing them at a lot of businesses. I think purchasing power is coming in a little bit. My gut would say go with cigarettes over 
luxury couches. Yeah. And speaking of which, uh, Matt has a comment here. I cannot wait to listen to the doom porn from the RH CEO on the call after this. He is very entertaining. That is that is yeah. a good point. He is um, unlike a lot of CEOs, unlike 90% of them, he is unafraid to just say what's on his mind, which I think can be very insightful because he's not trying to BS you. Um, he'll let you know how the company's doing. I think it's pretty fun to watch, although they are they do sell very overpriced furniture. Um yeah, the consumer staples just, I think, seems safer in general when I'm looking at a consumer discretionary stock, unless it's someone like an Apple or a Nike who have multiple decades of brand dominance, I'm going to want a discount. Yeah, the discretionary and, stuff, and I, don't know, I don't know any discretionary business that I love that's, that I think is, is like insanely durable if it hasn't proven to be durable for like the last 40 years. Yeah. Okay. Tropical Tro- storm says I asked because my view is everyone already knows about the consumer stress and it's reflected in the valuation to many staples names where discretionary is va- discretionary is valued lower for the same reason. Yeah, that's right. Staples are at staples are a high multiple Hershey's really at a, you know, it's had a high multiple. It's one of my favorite ones I've looked at and on the watch list. It's way above 20 times earnings. I'd say, but at the same time, it's it's pretty realistic to potentially get an environment where earnings earnings decline for several years on some of the discretionary. Yeah, so it might be trailing multiples. Obviously, case by case, but trailing multiples might be misleading here. That is, yeah, that is true. They could be pricing in the earnings uh, decline, those, especially think- the discretionary businesses that have been taking price over the past couple of years. That aren't able to do that. That that to me is going to be that's going to hurt operating leverage. Yeah, I think it's a tough one. I think it's a tough one where if I'm looking at consumer discretionary, it's not something I typically like in general. But I do have some on my watch list, and I'm really just waiting for a big, big discount. And then consumer staples, um, I'm looking for well. It's a case by case basis depending on their earnings growth, but I'm for staples. I'm looking for something that's entirely discounting. Like I think it's really tough. It's really tough because again, if you find a good consumer discretionary one, Nike, Apple, whatever, I mean that could be a hundred bagger. So there is a lot higher, but again, Hershey is also a hundred bagger. So. It's really, like it's really tough more. for me. I like, yeah, I like stables more as well. I also don't less downside like, risk. It feels like I don't like stuff. I always discount. We talked about this before, but I really discount stuff that's in the physical world, um, as opposed to the digital world, just because you probably have late more labor costs. You probably have um, energy costs coming in, commodity costs. Real yeah. world's outperformed, though. That's right. It has been the return of the w- real world, but that's probably because the discount. Revenge. Revenge of the real world. All right. Yes, the, the, the revenge. The, yeah, we'll close this out for the last five minutes. But just before we say that, it's, that's because the discounts, uh, or excuse me, the spread between the digital in 2021 and 2020 was so absurd. But generally, all else equal, I would like a digital business better. But 
Yeah. All right. Uh, let me pull this up. Is there another comment there, Ryan? Or uh, what do we think about high, highly or higher leverage companies with durable free cash flow that will be able to buy back their debt if the credit markets bomb out here? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, ooh, interesting. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, I, We're I looking thought- at a company. I was looking at a company today. The companies that raised in 2020, I would say any company that's raised below four percent. Or their their like their total cost of debt was below four percent, and they they're sitting at ten percent for cash flow yields right now. I think yeah, those those companies are going to have really good returns for the next five years. Um, if someone raised in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, that's an indication to me that the CFO thinks with a capital allocator's mindset mindset or C, CEO and C, CFO with the one contingency being that they generate durable cash. If and I guess Matt mentions that here, but there are a lot of businesses that raised at really cheap rates that don't generate cash. Whether that's by choice or whether that's by default, that makes. I mean, th- then then it's terminal. Then the credit sucks for the cr- lenders. But uh, yeah, Carvana. Equity I think Carvana. Carvana could have been that example. Um, cannot believe people are still in that thing, but that's, we don't have time for that. Okay. Here's, but it does give, I mean, there, there are a lot of, I would say really good forward returns on companies that are out there like that. I think just a few, I mean, we're, we're talking about GoDaddy tomorrow. They did that in a really good way. They've reduced share count by, I want to say like more than 10% over the last two years. They've got reasonable cost debt and the business yeah. is pretty durable. That's the that's. I was just looking at that uh, looking at that all day, so it's the first one that comes to mind. But no, GPT three is going to disrupt them. And to Matt H's point, that's something Michael Burry tweeted about a long time ago. He deleted it too, but he said coming out of this, the companies with low cost debt, and durable cash, there, there's going to be plenty of good returns for investors to have. Yeah. All right. Here's the tweet. Uh, don't know if it was serious or not, but what are the biggest Ponzi schemes that almost no one wants to admit? And then they did the thinking emoji. Uh, super cool. Someone said taxes. Someone said social security system in the US, the US dollar. And then they gave a nice face with uh, someone like going uh, kind of like, you, oh, I didn't see it, right? But <laughs> anyone that's watching, yeah, yeah. The uh, taxes, crypto, Bitcoin. It's very, uh, it was very funny responses. Um, there, there's someone just the biggest galaxy brains out there where someone says, did you know before the formation of the U.S. Federal Reserve, it was illegal to pay taxes? Scary part. The Federal Reserve is neither controlled or owned by the U.S. government. That just Everyone, doesn't... yeah, a lot of just not. That's just false. It's just nonsense. <laughs> All right. The uh... Uh, social, everyone kept saying social securities. Ooh, someone said private equity. I'll oh, take this one. Maybe, I'll maybe. take this one. Cooking. Cooking. Biggest Ponzi scheme out there. You spend hours prepping your meal and it takes like 10 minutes to eat it. I think it's unfair. <laughs> it's unjust. Hours? What are you making over there? <sighs> hours? Okay, maybe not hours, but it always takes longer to cook it than eat it. So it's always the, the struggle <laughs> and not enough reward. The, that's, uh, that's nonsense. But what's I, more nonsense, that or the Federal Reserve as the biggest Ponzi scheme? 
that is that is definitely more nonsense. Although I guess by definition, people talk about the Fed being a Ponzi scheme. It's not. It's not the U.S. like the government has a monopoly on printing money. It's not a Ponzi scheme. They could just print it. That's right. Actually, not. It's it's not. It's not about it. Yeah. Yeah. Got another comment Um, here. The chat is quite active today. Arpen Karana, I hope I'm saying that right, says, hi, fellas, love your work, especially the deep dives. Any interest in deep dive on garbage companies or any chance you plan to cover railroads? Those are interesting. We'd love to look at those. I'm I admittedly kind of a novice when it comes to uh, railroads and We should do a the theme. We should, we should do a theme. Uh, industrial garbage and railroads. We should do as a theme for a month in 2023. Let's mark Incredible that down. Incredible moats on those railroad businesses. Incredible. That's what I hear, but but I haven't uh, looked into them. Also, we're talking about inflation and cooking uh, and Ponzi schemes. Matt says Chipotle is now fifty dollars a meal, so rocking a hard place on the cooking. That's a great callback from one of the tweets of the week. See, um, when someone, I think that that, that person that tweeted that's very smart. But the, someone tweeted out that two a two person meal at Chipotle is fifty dollars now, which is not remotely true. Um, I guess if you got a side and a drink, it would probably like, be like 35. But six that's extras also, of chicken. Yeah. If you got double meat, guac, a side and a drink, which again, you don't like a side and a drink. That's just, you don't have to get that. Also, no one's forcing you to go to Chipotle. It's like people talk about Chipotle and how much pricing power they have. Like people are just forcing them to eat there. Well, people like go a, because cooking's a Ponzi scheme. It's so much quicker. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, right. You should right. get long. You should get long some robotic uh, cooking comp- Robotic cooking. What's the one that Chipotle owns? Might, Chippy. Chippy. I might have uh, to fish in that pond. Yeah. All seems right. Like you it's, really, really hate that. So it's five o'clock Pacific time. So that is going to do it. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Thanks for all the questions in the chat. Really appreciate it. we do. Really appreciate it. We do this every Thursday at four o'clock Pacific time, seven uh-huh. o'clock Eastern time. Although it's going to be Monday next week because you are on vacation. Ah, true. Yes, it will be next Monday. Let me actually make sure I get the time right so everyone can tune in if they feel so inclined. It will be one second. Three o'clock Pacific time. So six o'clock Eastern time next Monday. And then typically Thursdays, four o'clock Pacific time. All right. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Reminder, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. 